0: The following audio is from Life Journey Church. More information about Life Journey Church is available at www.lifejourneyva.com. Morning. All right, for the rest of you, good morning. Anybody? All right, as Walt said, i got to tell you, if you weren't here last week, you missed an amazing Sunday. I wish that every Sunday we could experience the, uh, the ingredients that we had last week that aren't usual, such as baptism, celebration... And obviously an influx of guests to celebrate Easter with us. So if this is your first time or or maybe your first time in a long time, I've really got to echo Walt's thoughts and say that I mean you've missed out on an amazing twenty months or so of life journey church being in this high school meeting weekly. God's doing some incredible things among us, and he's not finished yet. So last week, as Mark said, Mark said, last week as Walt said, we wrapped up a nine week sermon series looking at the person and work of Christ as found in the Old Testament through the pen of Moses, and we saw some amazing actions and pictures of the eternal Son of God, thousands of years before he put on flesh and was born in a small town called Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago. But if you recall, that nine-week sermon series was really just a parenthetical. What we had done was we had had peeked into a conversation that Jesus was having with a couple of his disciples as they were walking to this little town called Emmaus, about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus told them, do you not understand that everything that was written in scriptures of the Messiah had to happen? And so we saw that uh, basically we did a nine-week flashback into what that conversation may have looked like between Jesus and these disciples. They didn't even know who he was. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to finish out Luke's account of Jesus' resurrection then we're going to continue Luke's flow of thought into the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote. And for the next few weeks, starting today, for the next three, possibly four weeks, we're going to examine really the formation, the foundation, and the function of the New Testament church. And we're going to see just how it is that Life Journey Church fits into the biblical narrative. So having said that, turn in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 24, whether you've got your Bible, a phone, iPad. Uh, I was going to say, if you don't have one, we have some on our welcome table, but that might be a bit of a hike for you. But nonetheless, we're going to be in Luke chapter 24. And as you turn there, let me quickly set our context. Remember, in the text, it's still Resurrection Sunday. I know we celebrated this last week, but everything that we've covered for the last uh, really 11 weeks counting today has all taken place in the context of Resurrection Sunday, that first day when Christ was risen out of the tomb. And in this account, as I said, he's talking to two of his disciples that they, they just, they're supernaturally prevented from recognizing that they're actually talking to Jesus. All they know is Jesus died on Friday, he, some of the guys went to the tomb, his body wasn't theirs, and we just really don't know what's going on, but we thought that he was the one, we thought that maybe he was the Messiah, but he's gone now, we just really don't know what to do with that. And so throughout the course of this conversation, Jesus begins to lay out the reality that all of Scripture was designed to point towards the Messiah, the deliverer of God's people. And as this band of travelers walks this road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, Jesus systematically walks with them through the writings of Moses and the prophets the entire time, making that Christ connection for them. And again, we really don't know the specifics of that conversation, but as you saw with just our very quick snapshot through Genesis and part of Exodus, Jesus is everywhere, and so there was no shortage of content. Then in verse 28, we find that as they get to Emmaus, Jesus and these two disciples reach a fork in the road. They reach that point in their journey where the disciples were going to go one way, but but Jesus was actually getting set to go the other way. He intends to head on past this town. But these two disciples that Jesus was talking to weren't quite ready to end this conversation. And they said, please, stay with us, for it's towards evening, and the day is now far spent. I said, come on, sir, it's too late to travel. The day is getting late, it's getting dark. We don't have lights on the roads. You have no cell service. Why don't you hang out with us for a little bit? At least eat food with us. They wanted this conversation to continue. Because even though they had spent all afternoon talking with Jesus, they were in no rush for that conversation to end. And I love quiet times like that. You ever have those periods where you're sitting and you're reading the Word and and the Word is reading you and it's almost like every word you read, it's like the Holy Spirit's just breathing life into your flesh? I guarantee you this seven-mile-long conversation, whatever the duration was, probably felt like 15 minutes, and they weren't ready for that to end. And so they go into the house, and they begin to eat supper together, and as Jesus blesses the bread and breaks it and gives it to them, he supernaturally lets them see that he is Jesus. And right about the time their eyes grew to be the size of a saucer, Luke says that he vanished from sight. And they looked at each other and they said, did did our hearts not burn within us while Jesus was talking to us and walking with us and explaining all of these things in Scripture? That was Jesus. I knew there was something about this guy. And they wasted no time going back to Jerusalem so they could relay to the 11 disciples, plus everyone that was with them, what had just happened to them. And so in verse 36, we find that while these two disciples who were talking to the 11 disciples and everybody with them were having this conversation perhaps all the way in the middle of the night because remember, they had spent seven miles walking to Emmaus. The day was getting late. They ate. They went back seven miles and now they're in this this really a clandestine meeting where the followers of Christ are trying to figure out what's going on. Some people say that Peter saw him and and some people say these women at the tomb saw him, but his body's not there and they're just trying to figure out what in the world is going on. And so as this conversation's going on, we find that Jesus Himself appears in the midst of them, even though according to John, the door to this room was locked. And so Jesus vanished. He showed up in this locked room. And Jesus says, Peace to you. Like, why are you afraid? It's me. Look, flesh, bones, it's me. Don't be afraid. I'm not a ghost. And He showed them His hands and His feet were a mere three days before. He He had been pierced for their transgressions where he had been sacrificed for their sins where he had taken the beaten that they knew that they deserved because they had broken the law of god he had taken upon himself their sins and they knew that as he's standing in this room right in front of them that he is the savior of the world that he is the Lamb of god slain from the foundation of the earth and they can't believe it as craig said it's too good to be true no, no seriously Verse 41 says that they were so elated at the implications of Jesus' resurrection, they couldn't allow themselves to actually hope that it was true. And so Jesus says, do you have anything here to eat? Now, look, this is my kind of friend. Missing for days, assumed to be dead, popping up unannounced, uninvited, in the middle of this room, and one of the first things out of his mouth is, hey, what's in the fridge? (laughs) This is my kind of guy. And we know there's only one sandwich fitting for a king, a BLT, which is bacon, a little more bacon, and top it off with bacon. Remember, not the best part of the New Covenant, but definitely a perk. Um, but as we laugh about this, just, just picture with me, can you, imagine, can you imagine what Jesus is thinking? I mean, he's standing in front of this group of men, perhaps women as well, who can't believe that it's really him who can't believe that after all they've experienced in the last three years, particularly in the last three days, they can't really believe that it, that it could be true, that the Messiah truly could have came, that he truly could have bore their sins, that he truly could have suffered the wrath of God and yet still be in this room with them. And Jesus is like, you have some food, I'll eat something and show you that I'm real. But can you imagine the twinkle in his eye as he's standing in front of this people? And from his existence... Which, think about that from Jesus' existence, which is eternal. He's been looking forward to this moment where he can stand in front of these and say, Guys, I've done it. I've done it. I took your sin upon myself. I've made you right with the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I've done this for you. Do you got some food? I'll eat a stinking sandwich if you need me to prove that I'm real and that this is true. And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish. He might have been a pescatarian. Definitely not a vegan. Jesus ate himself some fish. They should have gave him some bacon, but they didn't realize at that point that the Old Covenant had been annulled. But Jesus is it's like he's saying, see guys, look, the ghosts eat. He says, make no mistake, I'm supernatural, but, but I'm real. Give me some food, let's eat. Ghosts don't eat. And so he said to them in verse 44, he said, remember what I told you when I was with you? I mean, just... Very quick rabbit trail. As Jesus walks, and we're going to see, as Jesus spends some time on the earth after his resurrection, I don't know that we have anything new that he teaches whatsoever during that time period. And so really the only thing that we're, we're learning now is really what he taught while he was on earth. Because now that we have the new covenant lens by which we can see scripture, everything begins to make sense. And Jesus said, did you not listen to everything that I told you when I was with you? I told you this had to happen. All of scripture was pointing towards this. This isn't some anomaly. This isn't a blip. This is the plan. And so he said, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Come on, guys. Didn't you see this coming? Now look at this. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. They had the Scriptures. It was right in front of them. Jesus, the incarnate Word of God, was right in front of them. And yet they were oblivious. Jesus had to open up their minds. He did the same thing here that was required for those other two disciples that Jesus was talking to. He did the same thing here that He's been doing for the last 2,000 years, opening minds, providing illumination through His Spirit. Because apart from that, Apart from the work of the Holy Spirit making the Word of God pop off the page, come to life. Apart from that, whether you're a believer or not, they're just going to be words. The Word of God, yes. But revelation is required more than simply knowledge. And so Jesus says, come on guys, Scripture's done nothing but point to the suffering, the resurrection of the Christ, of the Messiah. And He said that repentance and the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in My name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. He said, you've seen these things. Don't you understand what's happening here? And, the, and get this. He says, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. Isaiah and Joel long ago prophesied the outpouring of the Spirit of God. But Jesus says, Not yet. Not yet. Stay put. Stay in Jerusalem until you're clothed with power on high. But Jesus, you mean there's more? There's, there's really more to this? It's not enough that you just simply purchased us? That, that you bought us? That you died for us? That you delivered us? There's more? Was that not enough? And, and Jesus says, well, I mean, that's enough, but that's not all. There's more to come. It gets better, Jesus says. But wait. Wait. Now, Luke ends this account with Jesus rising up to heaven. But before we get there, we need to jump over to Acts chapter 1, which, like I said, is really a continuation of, of Luke's thought. So go ahead and turn there, flip in your pages, uh, turn off the Angry Birds, flip over in new version of Acts chapter 1. You can think of, think of it this way, Luke, the Gospel according to Luke, part 1. That's really Luke's account of the life and ministry, the healing ministry, the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. As we get into the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, he begins this thing post-resurrection and then proceeds through three decades of the first early formative years of the church. And so in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, Luke tells us that Jesus had presented himself alive to his people, hundreds of them, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. What did he say? Probably the same thing he said for the last three and a half years. The kingdom of God isn't about you, it's about me. It's not about works, it's about me. It's not about your effort, it's about me. It's not about rules, it's about me. It's not about you, it's about me. I guarantee you his message did not change. Throughout that time, Jesus told his followers, stay in Jerusalem. Just hang tight. Don't go anywhere just yet. Why? Because the most incredible thing conceivable was about to happen. See, God wasn't merely interested in taking upon himself the sins of his people through his son. He wasn't simply interested in giving his son a bride, us. He wasn't just simply interested in rescuing a group of people. See, he promised adoption into his family through the outpouring of his spirit something that the disciples had maybe heard about in the Old Testament, but this was going to be something new altogether. God was going to join himself to his covenant people. Stay in Jerusalem, Jesus said. Greater things are coming. It's, it's good for you that I leave because I'm going to send another. He said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You think it's just about being immersed in the water? <laughs> Jesus says, you have no idea. The best is coming, and soon. But Jesus' disciples still aren't seeing the global aspect of this work of what Christ has done. And they ask him in verse 6, they say, Well, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? It's great that you saved us. Now, are you ready to, to gather Israel back and elevate us as a world power? Are you going to do that now? And Jesus basically says, Stop worrying about stuff that's not yours to worry about in the first place. He said, My Father will handle that. But for you... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes and has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And even as he speaks these words, Luke tells us that as they were looking on, he, Jesus, was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. I wish I had time this morning to draw the parallel between the cloud that was with Israel all the way back through the writings of Moses in this same cloud that is concealing Christ as he disappears from view. Verse 10, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, (laughs) I'm mean, i going to be staring. As they're gazing as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, which we know from Scripture indicates that they were angels. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? I mean, we would be doing this number, and they're like, "Why, why are you doing that? Because the same way that he went, He's going to come back. Now talk about your absence of fanfare. I mean, that, that's it. I mean, Luke spent an entire book talking about the ministry of Christ and now basically there's a little blip at the front part of this book and just like that, Jesus is gone. I mean, it's, it's like watching Jack Bauer run around on 24 and you spend months watching this thing and the next thing you know it's over and you're like, wait wait a minute. What did I miss here? He's, he's gone? But he just, he just came back like last month and what is he doing? but it's enough, you know? What Jesus said and what He did before He left was enough. And we're going to spend the next few weeks unpacking the creation and multiplication of this early church movement. But, spoiler alert, they did it. What it was that Jesus said they were going to do, they've done. We're doing. See, the transforming power of the gospel and regeneration shortly thereafter landed on a small group who immediately began to go outside of this room they were in and proclaim the good news. And as we go through the book of Acts, and we're not going to cover the entirety of the book, we're going to spend a little bit of time on the first couple of chapters, but as you go through the book, you'll see that the beginnings part of this church, really it was a Jewish thing. Initially, it was just among Jewish people. Even on the day of Pentecost, as the gospel hit the ears of these Jews from other nations, it's a Jewish thing. And so in Acts chapter 10, we find a man named Cornelius who becomes the first documented non-Jewish Christian, which just really absolutely blows fuses of the Jews because this entire time they were like, we're God's people, Father Abraham, our father, not your father. But then the Holy Spirit begins to fall upon the Gentiles and they're like, well, wait a minute, maybe this kingdom that Jesus is talking about is a little bit bigger than us. And so the gospel begins to go through the parameters of the nation of Israel into Gentiles. And shortly after this, God scatters his church through means of mission and persecution. And so in AD 42, Mark who would just spent 18 months walking through his account of the gospel of Christ, takes the gospel with him to Egypt. A few years later, we see that Paul goes to Turkey and does the same thing. In AD 51, Paul then goes to Greece, and a year after that, Thomas, you know, Doubting Thomas, we don't even have time to talk about him this morning, but he's not as bad as what you think. All right, we need to cut the guy some slack. Thomas goes to India. In AD 54, now some two decades after the resurrection of Jesus, Paul heads out on his third missionary journey, greatest missionary ever, Let's fast forward a little bit. By AD 174, the first Christians are reported in Austria. In AD the first countryside churches are reported in Italy, which is huge because now the gospel is going outside of the, the busy city center and starting to reach into these small countryside countries and villages. By eighty three fifty, 350, sincere or not, history shows that about 53% of the Roman Empire confessed Christ as Lord. Do you remember the empire that murdered him? Rome. We're talking some 33 million people saying Christ is Lord. You can't stop the message of God's grace. In AD 432, St. Patrick heads over to Ireland not to start a bar or a holiday, but to plant churches and take the gospel. Don't even have time for him this morning. In AD 596, Augustine, Augustine, depends on your level of education, uh, takes a team of missionaries into now what is known as England, and in that first year, 10,000 people are baptized. 10,000 people in one year in one place. By 8740 Irish missionaries have hit Iceland. Now, how did the Irish missionaries get the gospel? St. Patrick. So they received the gospel and now what are they doing? They're going. They're taking it. They're spreading it. By AD 90, missionaries are in Norway. By 1498 Christians are reported in Kenya. Slow steady growing, can't stop this movement. By the 19th century, multiple denominational and independent missions agencies are being formed in our very country, retracing the footsteps of the gospel, reestablishing gospel footholds where they had been lost, and even now we are continually striving to reach into the darkest corners of the globe where the gospel has either been lost or has not yet been taken to, and taking the message of God's grace with us, doing everything possible to reach all people. This zeal for spreading the fame of God landed in Walt Davis' heart in 2011 prompting him to uproot his family, to resign from his job, to, on an act of faith, say, we've got to go to Crozet, Virginia, or Croset. I don't even know if you knew how it was pronounced when you first said, this is the place. Need to take the gospel there. The following year, my family moved here from Indiana to help Walt launch Life Journey Church from this very high school where where seven days ago, 200 people were in here listening to the same message that Jesus told that initial group of people, take it worldwide. We're doing it here. You can't stop the gospel. See, Life Journey Church began as a dream to spread the fame of God to our neighbors, to our nations, and we're seeing it happen weekly as a corporate body in pockets of one, twos, and threes, and small groups of discipleship, where either as a body or in these pockets, we're able to dive into the gospel deeps and realize this is who we are in Christ. This is what's been done for us. And so it's no longer about, well, what do I do? What do I have to do? What do I need to do to make God happy continually? What do I need to do to make God still love me? What do I have to do? It's not about that. It's about it is finished. And as we realize that from every aspect of Scripture, which points to Christ, we're transformed. We're also spreading the fame of God not just in the multiplication of disciples, but in the multiplication of community groups. The idea that we're pursuing is to be a church of community groups, not simply a church with community groups. And so what began as one group meeting in Walt and April's living room in 2011 became two groups, three groups by 2012, four groups in 2013, and now in 2014 we have five community groups that are actively transforming our communities and our surrounding culture with the gospel of Christ. The dream is to have a community group on every street of every block of every neighborhood. Slow and steady wins the race. We're going to get there. We're also spreading the fame of God through the multiplication of churches. Currently, Life Journey Church sponsors two church planters in the U.S. We also go to Guatemala. We've been with Calvin and Nathan. Definitely don't have time for that. But we're taking the fame of God, and we're trying to actively support church planting locally and domestically. But in addition to that, another church has landed on our radar called Grace Church, located across the mountain and ministering to Waysboro and her surrounding communities. Grace Church exists to make devoted followers of Christ within her community and around the world by faithfully proclaiming and living the gospel of God's grace found through Jesus Christ. There are five driving values behind that mission. I know that there's more, but there's five that that really form the nucleus of who this church is. And hopefully they can resonate with us because hopefully they are values that we indeed all hold dear. And the first is this, transformational grace. See, grace is God's unmerited favor. It's His pouring out His blessings upon His people. That He saved us, that He made us was an act of grace. That we had the chance to experience something of God by seeing His attributes through His creation is an act of grace that He saved us even more so. And so Grace Church recognizes the ever-present need for grace to fuel and drive absolutely everything she does, whether it's through their gatherings, community groups, volunteer service, community outreach, in everything they seek to receive and reveal the unconditional grace of God. Second value would be the supremacy and the sufficiency of Scripture. See, Grace Church believes that while the Bible is not God's only source of revelation, it's God's special source of revelation. And so everything that Grace Church does as a body or as an individual is grounded upon the authoritative principles of God's Word as together they seek to prayerfully learn, apply, and then teach others what it is that God has said. And the center of this, understandably, is gospel centricity. And so here's the thing. This is what makes the gospel truly good news. The gospel isn't simply, well, I accepted Jesus, and so now I have a free ticket to heaven. I mean, that would be good in and of itself, but the gospel is more than that because in his death and burial, our, our dead inner man was cut out from us and removed. And so now who we are now after conversion... Looking back to who we were before conversion, we can't even be that anymore because that element of us is gone. We have this new creation. In his resurrection, Jesus now gives life, not just a card that says you have eternal life. I'm talking legit, real spiritual life within you that is fused to the Holy Spirit of God. That's what makes the gospel good news. It's not simply, I forgive you. It's, I accept you. I adopt you. I embrace you. I love you. You are mine. And when I look at you, yes. We are not perfect yet in this flesh, but that's not how God relates to us. God relates to us now on the basis of what he has created within us. And so now the rest of our existence is simply dwelling on that and letting that leak out of us. Letting the fruit of the Spirit come as a byproduct of abiding in the one who has saved us. And so the gospel drives everything that Grace Church does, from strengthening families, gathering in corporate worship or community groups, developing leaders, multiplying disciples, Fourth core value of Grace Church is relational commitment. Because as the gospel of grace continues to transform their members, Grace Church wants to be relationally committed to each other. They serve one another with excellence as they fulfill the various ministries that God has put within them to do, while also enjoying the authentic transparency that comes with close fellowship. And because of their commitment to God, to each other, they're able to joyfully, willingly give of their time, talents, and treasures as together they achieve the mission that God has built them for. Fifth core value is missional compassion. Grace Church is a missional church. As they make relevant inroads into the culture around them, they're able to further God's kingdom one relationship at a time. And their evangelistic zeal isn't simply for their local community. They have an eye on the neighbors, on the nations, and are actively training church leaders, missionaries, church planters, and equipping God's people. And so by now you're probably wondering, well, why is he talking so much about Grace Church? And why have I never heard about this thing? Well, you've probably never heard of it because it doesn't exist yet. We're going to plant this thing together. I wish that I had time to walk with you this morning through the past seven months. If Walt and I have, as we've prayed, we've talked, we've strategized about how to reach Waynesboro specifically. See, Waynesboro right now, according to the latest demographic analysis, is 68% unreached, which means that about 13, 15 miles, I don't even know which way we're facing. That away, over the mountain, there are some 14,000 people who currently either have no idea who Christ is or they're simply not interested in pursuing a relationship. 14,000 souls just on the other side of the mountain that have yet to see the reality of God's grace and trust Christ as Savior. You draw a line from Williamsboro to Stanton, it's about 12 miles long, Stanton's another 26,000 people, highly unreached. If you draw a circle with that thing, you've got 80,000 people within that pocket, easy driving distance of Williamsboro, the majority of which do not know Christ as Savior. And so the need there is huge, it's undeniable. It's also this mountain range presents a big barrier. People don't want to drive across the mountain and go check out a church plant that's not even two years old. And so we were a little frustrated because we weren't seeing the people come from Waynesboro that we wanted to see, and about the same time we realized that we weren't seeing that, Sarah and I began to feel an attraction to Waynesboro, to the culture, to the community. When you couple that with the realization that I'm taking my son to Afton every day for school and just working in Waynesboro, it allowed me to make connections with people, to try to get a feel for the heartbeat of the town, to start seeing what the theological landscape looked like. And so to make a long story short, back in February, a couple of months ago now, I went to Walton who knew that the gears in my head and my heart were turning since September. And I said, Walt, we've prayed about it. Sarah and I have talked about it. And we really feel that God is calling us not to just facilitate people coming from Waynesboro into Crozet, plugging into Life Journey Church, being equipped, and then taking back out to plant church in Waynesboro, which is great. That was the dream. But I said, Walt, I think that God's wanting us to develop a team from within what we've got now at Life Journey Church. Take them across the mountain, kickstart a community group, and watch God do the same awesome thing through there, in that community that we're seeing Him actively do here in Crozet. And so I'm thrilled to tell you our big, super secret announcement that maybe two of you didn't know about is that we're going to plant a church in Waynesboro, Virginia. <laughs> When I told somebody this a couple months ago, their response was this I've been praying so hard that you would leave. (laughs) Totally not what I was expecting. (laughs) So, if any of you are already thinking of that, it's already been done. Now, obviously, there's a lot of details to iron out, but I can tell you the big picture there's not a whole lot that's going to change on the surface between now and September. But come September, uh, we're going to launch my family, a couple other families. Everyone's invited, except for Craig. I keep saying Craig's not invited. Uh, He's too valuable here. But in September, we're going to commission a team of people that are going to start a community group that hopefully multiplies into multiple community groups that then becomes a weekly gathering. Walt and I are already talking about doing joint outreach, inreach endeavors into our respective communities. We're still going to Guatemala together so that we can figure out, okay, well, how does Williamsburg and Crozet together transform the landscape? I mean, this is a full-fledged partnership that we invite all of you to participate in. But as happy and excited as Walt and I are, the question might still be floating around in the back of your mind, well, why? I mean, maybe it's why plant a church in Waynesboro, but maybe the question is, well, why plant churches at all? And that's a good question, a great question, because, because we know that Jesus' followers did that. We know that what had started in Jerusalem has now spread everywhere. Obviously, that grassroots moment our grassroots movement took off like nothing else, and we're going to explore the ins and outs of that. We're going to look at how that happened, perhaps where it happened and why it happened. But I want to take the last few minutes that we have this morning and really flesh out the answer to this question. Why were the early followers of Christ compelled to take this life-endangering message of God's grace to the ends of the earth? And why should we? Now, obviously, a very quick and easy answer to this is, Jesus said, do it said do it, let's do it, got a job to do. Jesus told us to do it. And that's true. He most definitely commanded his disciples through this great commission to take the gospel worldwide. But it could be argued that on the day of Pentecost, as Jews from every nation under the sun heard this gospel in their language and then took it back, it could be argued that the great commission was fulfilled. So you could sit back and say, well, Jesus did command it, but it wasn't for me. But here's the problem. Right now, there are 42% of our global population, billions of people, who, regardless of the activity of the early church 2,000 years ago, have no clue who Jesus is. And so, the day we stop proclaiming Jesus' fame and the glory of God to everybody that we can, had better be the day Jesus comes back. And I would even say that the day he comes back, we're just simply going to shout it even louder. And so, you can look at that and say, ah, well, it was done. But look, people are separated. Christ. Should we be missional just because Jesus told us to? Thursday was Sarah's birthday and I had a blast taking her out. We ate dinner and watched a movie, God is Not Dead, if you've not got the memo yet. Uh, Good movie, (sighs) Rabbit Trail. Uh, It was my pleasure taking her out and we had fun and I got her a gift and I love doing these things. But if I told you If I told you, yeah, I took her out because somebody said that's what good husbands do. and I got her a present because it was her birthday and you get people presents on their birthday and I took her to a movie because I read this book and it said good husbands take their wives to If I told you that the only reason I was serving my wife in that capacity was out of rote obedience, what does that tell you about my relationship to my wife? It tells you there is none. It would also tell you that I'd probably be sleeping on the couch that night, but I spent time with her and I took her out and I got her presents because I love her and because I enjoy doing these things. And we need to remember, as we view the teachings of Christ, as we watch the subsequent actions of His followers, we've got to remember just who it is that Jesus was talking to. We have to remember that for centuries, as a people, Israel had been placed beneath the law of Moses that they could never possibly keep and it was designed to show them they can't keep this law. They didn't quite get that memo. And so for hundreds of years, it's all about what I can do and I can do good enough and I can make God love me and I can can do all of these things. But then here's Jesus on the scene for years saying, guys, you got it wrong. It's not about works. It's about grace. It's not about rules. It's about grace. It's not even about Moses. It's about grace. And so finally they realized that Jesus who had been on the ground wearing their flesh, walking in their shoes, living with them, eating with them, breathing with them, suffering with them, being hungry, tired, and homeless. He was saying, it's not about anything you could possibly do, but it's about grace personified in me, the Son of God. And we spent a year and a half watching Jesus systematically destroy the religiosity of these pharisaical fools who thought that it was all about what they could do for God, as though God now owed them eternal life. Jesus said, You can't work for anything, but I can do the work for you. And so that resurrection Sunday, that first Easter, that night as these disciples saw their Messiah in front of them and they realized, He's done it all. I can't do it, but He can. Do you really think that when Jesus said, now go into all the world and take this good news and spread it with you, do you really think their answer was, all right, guys, Jesus told us what to do. So, No. And if that's your attitude towards taking the gospel of Christ and spreading it, whether it's to your next door neighbor or the next country beside you, if your attitude is, I'm only doing this because Jesus said to you, then I would dare say, you're clueless about the gospel. Now, you might have the gospel, but it doesn't have you. Do you remember what happened as we walked through Mark? What happened to all these people who encountered Christ? Even the ones that Jesus said, just don't say anything yet. What did they do? They couldn't shut up about what they had experienced. They ran back to their villages. They told everybody, do you have any idea what this man Jesus has done? I think he's the Messiah. They couldn't stop talking about him. Is there a mandate to fill? Yes. Is there work to be done? Yes. Should we labor in love to reach those who do not know Christ? Yes. Should we plant more churches that are spirit-empowered, grace-centered, Christ-exalting, God-glorifying, life-changing, transforming awesomeness? Absolutely. But these things flow. As worship from a heart overflowing with love and gratitude for the one who has saved us. It's not rote obedience. It's not duty. It's not, well, there's a command on the checklist that now I have to do if I want to keep God happy with me. It's not anything based on religion whatsoever. It's a natural. Outflowing of gratitude, whether that means that you become part of this movement and you go, or perhaps you become a behind the scenes prayer warrior who, through your prayers, this is the only way it can happen. Maybe you're a financial backer through Life Journey Church. I don't know what that looks like for you, but everybody here has the capacity, the ability to worship God through this work. We're excited to see that God has given us this opportunity. And I want you to know that though mission statements vary from church to church, It might be spelled out a little differently. It might be lived out a little differently. I want you to know our journey marker, our thought for the week is this. Jesus' church exists to worship Jesus. That's what we do. Why do you think we want to spread the fame of God? Because He's worth it. So we exist, every church, the New Testament church, which continues on today, this little band of apostles, everything we do, every reason we could possibly come together as a people, can find no other basis than simply worshiping the one who died for us, because he's worth it. So pray about the role that God would have you play in this. We're deviating from normal Sunday sermonizing this morning, and uh, I'd like to invite Walt up here to conclude with some parting thoughts as our lead pastor. It's been a wonderful 20 months, 20 months of learning from his phenomenal, yeah, I'm just going to give you all kinds of compliments, phenomenal, unparalleled, leadership. Uh, For those of you that don't know, I was a volunteer in his youth group for a year before I went to be a student pastor in Indiana, doing what I had learned from this guy to do. And so it really didn't come as a a surprise when God would lead me to uh, work with Walt so that I can look at Walt and learn from Walt how to do over there what's being done here. And so, Walt, I appreciate your friendship,
1: and uh, love you, bro. Love you too, man. We're very proud of Richard and Sarah uh, for this uh This is big, you know, this is very big. There's no guarantees in this sort of stuff, so we're very proud of them. Uh, During the—and I'll just have a couple of comments, and we'll wrap up. The band, I think, can go ahead and make your way up. Uh, But uh, during the most difficult time of our lives, um, April and I went to Guatemala in 2010. And while we were there in Guatemala, we we served with a church planter. His name is Ron, okay, Uh, which is kind of cool because in Spanish they say rum, you know, so his name's Rum. Uh, but whatever. But we served with him, and this was his whole vision, was to plant a church in this very remote village in Guatemala called Shehuyup. And, and the idea was to plant this church in this very remote village with the explicit desire of planting churches in the dozens of even further remote villages around Shehuyup. Okay, we got that picture? So he's got this hub to then plant churches all around. And in 2010... God used that one week there in April of my life to just totally totally rock our world for what we believe God wants us to spend the rest of our life doing, and so we moved up here, as Richard said, in two thousand and eleven to plant this church of life journey church, and I remember uh, we joke about this when we were first having Bible studies just in my living room there in the Highlands neighborhood, just you know, uh two and a half years ago, we had like maybe twelve people, I think maybe the sweatshirts were there uh, uh Angie breathing uh, Lila, and and we were there, and we were with ta- twelve people were there talking about the next church we're going to plant. <laughs> it's like, how how in the world are you going to talk about planting a new church when we hadn't even like taken an offering yet you know for this church? you know like what what how does that work and, and I didn't know, and I still honestly don't know, but how cool is it now to kind of see how God has continued to pave the way? Uh, that on our second anniversary, this coming September 7th, prayerfully we'll have a whole row of people from our church, and maybe even from Waynesboro, that aren't even a part of our church, that Richard builds relationships with, that we are going to commission to send across the mountain to be a part of Grace Church on our second anniversary. Um, when, uh, if you've been coming here for a while, this, this shouldn't be a surprise uh, because we have had hanging for over a year now the fact that we seek to multiply disciples, groups, and churches. And so when we hear the news that we're just multi- the multiplying a church, it, sh- it shouldn't be news, but it's exciting because now we're actually seeing it actually starting to happen. Now, I don't know what your background is like, but a window into my background, and I was sharing this with our leadership team last night, is that I come from a, a church background when, when people, they leave... And if enough people leave a church, the church what? Splits. That's the culture that I'm from. The culture is you get mad, and so you leave. And if enough people get mad at the same stuff, the church splits. I can mention names of some churches in our area, uh, and the first thing that comes to some of your minds is, oh, well, that church always splits, that church always splits, that church always splits. That's the culture I came out of. In fact, the church that both uh, Calvin and I served at different times was a split of another church. All right? So that's the culture I come out of. And I, I assume many of you probably come out of a similar culture, where people get upset, they leave, enough people get upset the church splits here's my prayer my prayer is that Life Journey Church that we develop a culture that God develops a culture where we don't see people leaving listen, we see people being sent you see the difference? we don't see a bunch of people leaving and therefore the church splits we want to develop a culture where enough people are sent and so the church multiplies you see the difference? It's a huge difference. But we, we, we've got some, some work to do in our own minds to make up for ourselves that we're not going, we're not a church of people leaving and church splitting. We're a church of people being sent on mission to multiply the church into communities around us. Um, amen. I just want to finish with a story, and we're going to stand up, and we're going to sing some worship songs. Um, Mark chapter 2, Jesus was um, ministering. He went away to pray, and Peter comes and said, what are you doing? we got to get back to the village because people are wanting you to, like, touch him and heal them. And this is what Jesus says in verse 38. He says, wait a second, Peter. Let us go to the, anybody remember? To the next town. Let us go to the next village. Because that's why I came from heaven to go to the next village. I was telling you about our trip in, our time in Guatemala. When we were down there, five of us from Life Journey, when we were down there this last summer, uh, we, were, we were doing a nighttime uh, event. And, and Calvin, you were there with me. You took pictures of these lights. There was up on top of the mountain, like as I mean, we were already on top of the mountain, but then there's even more mountains. There's these lights. And Calvin and I, we were looking at those lights. Remember this? We were looking at those lights. You we say, man, what's up there? So the next day, we get, I get in the truck with Ron Maggard, our missionary, and we travel up this crazy road, a road that you'd never want to be on. Um, we travel up there, and we finally find what's up there, this next village. Well, we talk with some people, and we're making our way back down, and there, were, there was a man walking down the mountain. And so we pick him up. He's in the back seat. His name's Diego. You're going to need to remember that name, Diego. His name's Diego. And I don't speak Spanish, right? But Ron does. And so they're talking, and I'm just like, hey, make sure we, you know, give him a track, give him the gospel, give him something, right? So Ron's talking with them, and they, they he shares Christ, and he says, are you a Christian, Diego? And this is what Diego says. He says, no, I'm not, not at this time. And so we continue on, and Come to find out, Diego is actually the, in charge of the school up in that top village that we went to. And Diego, ever since we were there that day, has been calling and emailing regularly for a group from America to come back and to go to his village to tell about, about American culture, about America, and about, you know, different things. And so Ron has taken that opportunity to continuously talk about the gospel. Well, Diego called Ron a couple days ago and said, uh, Ron, I, I want you to send me, to email me, your beliefs, your Christian beliefs, what this is all about. So Ron, of course, did. Ten different leaders of this village come together with the Bibles that we had given them, and they walked through the basic doctrines, the virgin birth, the incarnation of Jesus, uh, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, the basic doctrines of the faith. They start walking through them, 10 of these leaders opening up their Bibles that we've given them, studying on their own. No, no Christian in the group. Finding out, figuring out what this is all about. And then Diego called Ron just a couple days ago and said, Ron, when is a group coming to us, the next village, to tell us in person what this is all about? July 11th is when we're leaving. We've got a team from our church and a team from another church that's going to that village, the next village, to tell them the reality of Jesus. I don't know what's going to happen, but what I'm seeing happen is as we lift up the name of Jesus, God's going to draw people to himself. Now listen. How many Diego's are there right now in Waynesboro? People who are clueless, who have no idea about the reality of Jesus' love for them, following their version of Diego's Mayan religion, whatever that is. And they're there waiting, waiting for us to come with this message of love, this message of grace, this message of forgiveness, this message of life. And so whether or not you, how you fit into this picture, if you want to be a part of the actual team that moves there and goes there, great. If you want to be a financial contributor of that, you can do that through writing a check and writing Waynesboro in it or through our online giving. We're going to put an account. It's already done. Uh, you just earmark that for Waynesboro on our online giving. Whatever that looks like for you, we want you to be a part of this because we're going to be a part of this as a church. This is why we're here. This is why we came out to go also to the next village. And so to th- this morning, maybe um, you're the Diego. Maybe you are waiting for somebody to tell you about who Jesus is. Well, we're going to stand and sing in a couple of seconds. And Richard and I will be available. If you want to come and talk about what it means to believe in Jesus, man, we would love to talk with you. No dumb questions, no silly questions at all. Any question is a fair question. If you have a question about Jesus this morning. But, you know, I'm pretty sure that maybe your neighbor... Your co worker, maybe even a family member of yours is a Diego. Just waiting for you to invite them to come here. Just waiting for you to tell them about this hope that we all have in Jesus. So let's go ahead and stand, and I'm gonna pray over us, and then we're gonna close out with a couple of worship songs. If you wanna come and talk, pray, whatever you'd like to do, I encourage you to come. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for what you're doing, God. We thank you for the reality. That nothing, nothing, nothing can, will, ever stop the reality of this message of grace. And God, I pray that you would help us to understand the message of grace better and better. Father, may we always be diligent to understand the message that Paul first preached to the Galatians because anything else is another gospel. God, help us to understand the pure reality of grace. Unmixed uncompromised. So, Father, I thank you for what you're doing. God, we pray that you would help us over these next uh, transitional months leading up to September. God, as we pray that leaders within our church will rise up to overtake uh, major ministries, that families would, would, would surrender to the call to be a part of the Waynesboro plant. Whatever that looks like, God, we pray that your, your spirit would lead And that, as Richard has already said, we do this not because of a simple command, but we do it because we who were once dead have been made alive. And we just can't shut up about what you have done in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to
0: this message from Life Journey Church. Feel free to distribute this podcast, but please, do not charge for it or alter it in any way. For more information about Life Journey Church, visit us at www.lifejourneyva.com.